This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome for folks that are joining us here live on Clubhouse. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club, where we gather every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on TGIF DCT, covering a range of topics around innovation and digital and decentralization of clinical research, making trials more accessible. We gather every week with a special guest and cover a range of topics whether technical to operational, regulatory, and compliance to human and patient factors, of course, along the way. Um, if you are not here live with us, you may be listening to a replay on Clubhouse, or you might be listening to the decentralized podcast on your favorite podcast platform, wherever you may be. Give a follow so that you can stay current on any updates, uh, especially if we may drop some additional content during the week. Uh, and remember, if you are listening to a replay or listening on the podcast, you can always join us here live on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern time. The great part about that is we get to hear your voice and hear the questions, experiences, uh, concerns you may have around that given topic. Uh, Amir, we were just talking in a sidebar about the last couple of weeks and our conversations were themed around AI. We actually had two back-to-back -back weeks of AI and clinical trials, starting with uh, some folks from Finn Partners and Galen uh, around some use cases, and then moving on with uh, Dirk Arts from Castor. Uh, Jane, did you have any great takeaways, uh, any key highlights that jumped out in your mind? Um, well, it's a bit of a, it's not quite on topic, but I will say that this morning as I was reading about the um, the anger amongst the Swifties around inappropriate use of AI and image generation, I was thinking about Dirk's comments on how we do need some guidelines on what is and isn't okay. But I would not say that I would want the Swifties against me. That would be bad. <laughs> so, Craig, I, I mean, I, I had to listen to the replay because, as you know, I couldn't make it last week. But um, my takeaway was, and this is not just for last week with the AI, was how we just scratched the surface of the topics, quite frankly, despite having a whole hour. And I know we've felt like that about many topics, quite frankly, but you know, I left away thinking we had a very good discussion for an hour, but there was just so much more that we could have talked about. And you know, so it's definitely uh, 
going to be evolving, especially in a topic like AI, which itself evolves every week. So it seems to be a non-ending thing that one has to think about and learn more about. I would agree, Amir. I think, you know, we, we certainly spoke about a number of use cases, applications to clinical trials in general, decentralized in particular, data sources, whether pharma could do this alone in some cases versus working together and how to best work together with different tech partners. And of course, a lot of the concerns, whether around privacy, representation of data, um, and how do we have confidence in uh, many of these different tools today? But I know many of us are also experimenting in the background on our own, whether we're using AI note-taking apps, AI video editing apps, and so many other things just in our day-to-day -day life. So I agree, there's gonna be so much more to keep discussing and exploring here. In fact, Amir, that's probably a great reminder for us that uh, if there are topics that you, the community here in this room and our audience would like to see covered in the weeks and months ahead, drop a message to Jane, Amir, myself, uh, wherever you like to message, whether LinkedIn, X, Threads here on Clubhouse, or you can always send an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Share the topics you'd love to see us cover and maybe you'd like to be like our special guest this week and jump <laughs> up on stage with us and share some perspective. How is that for a setup about our very special guest we have, Jane? <laughs> it's, it's a good one. Uh, one last little call out. We do have our first meeting of the AI circle on Monday. So if you want to learn about that, we can drop the link in so you can join because Amir, we, we realized that an hour wasn't going to cover that topic. We're going to take it up offline and then come back here from time to time. Let's go ahead and drop in the chat a link for DTRA circles if folks would like to learn more about how to connect there. And we'll make sure that's also in the show notes if you're listening via podcast. Remembering DTRA circles open to any individual member of DTRA, but also if your organization is a member, then you're a member. And so you're welcome to join these circles, these smaller communities that are having regular gatherings on topics like the AI circle, going deep on, uh, on AI use cases. You don't have to be a bot. You don't have to be uh, an AI expert you can be a regular person and join those types of circles and learn and share with folks of all different uh, backgrounds along the way. Great call out, Jane, thanks. So this week, we have a very special guest known to so many in this community, but <laughs> for those who don't know her, a great opportunity to learn more about her story and her journey and uh, her intersection with both clinical trials, decentralization of research, and so many other areas. Welcome to this week's guest, Stacey Hurt, Chief Patient Officer <laughs> at Paracel. Welcome, Stacey. Oh, thank you, Craig. That's, wow. This, now it's really real. I mean, when you call me Chief Patient Officer, it's it's really real. Um, How about and... that? I even got, I got to say Chief Patient Officer in a public forum now for the first time with you. This is very exciting because oh. this is all pretty new, right, Stacey? Yes, I mean, um, so, you know, first of all, you know, I always begin all of my interactions with gratitude and uh, I just would be remiss if I didn't thank you, Jane, Amir, I'm looking at everybody on this call, I'm looking at Richie, I'm looking at Dina, I'm looking at Deirdre, um, I'm looking at Brad, 
um, all, you know, uh, among many others who elevated and amplified my voice. And, you know, I promised not to cry on this and I can already see I'm going to break that promise. But, you know, to come from where I came from and to just keep fighting and keep pushing and have the support of so many mentors and, um, you know, influential people in the industry who believed in me and, and said, yes, Stacy, keep going. You can do this. You know, I share this with you. And I, I know I said it on LinkedIn and it's one thing to see those words, but to hear me say them really with all my heart and all the emotion that I feel is an honor. So thank you. Thank you for, for being a part of this success. It means everything to me, truly. Stacy, this obviously means a great deal to you, and it means a great deal to so many in your circle that um, have known you and your journey. But for folks in the space with us here that have not had the pleasure, would you mind starting back a little bit and share a bit with us about what was your universe before stepping into a company like Parkcel? What was your intersection sure. with this field? Sure, sure thing. So. Um, I had a very nonlinear path to success. Uh, I started, you know, I, I came out with my MBA and MHA. I worked in various roles in, in healthcare. I, I carried the bag for 10 years for Merck and GlaxoSmithKline. I launched Advair, a multi-billion dollar drug, uh, and worked in, in various functions. I, I worked my way up in training and development. That was really going to be my jam, you know, in, in, in pharma. I really wanted to be in training and development. And I headed up uh, a really small company in, in training and development. So I had a bunch of healthcare business background across, you know, 25 years, different, different functions, working with physicians, working in back office with billing personnel, um, and, and, and learning different aspects of healthcare. And then along that professional journey, two deeply personal events happened to me in my life, whereas the first one was the diagnosis of my younger son, Emmett, with a rare chromosome abnormality. And Emmett's 18 now, but he has a six-month function, six level functionality, like a baby. So he wears a diaper. So I change his diapers every day. I feed him. I lift him. I toilet him. Um, he's completely dependent on my husband, myself, and a home health nurse for his care. So I'm his full-time caregiver. And he, he falls in the rare disease category. And hopefully gene therapy will improve, improve his life one day. That would be extraordinary. Um, he's, not, he's, he's not deteriorating. He's stable at a six-month level. So he's, he's thriving way. He's doing way more than the doctors ever expected. Um, the second event that happened to me was the, my diagnosis with stage four colon cancer in 2014. Um, so we're coming up on 10 years this year, which would be a huge milestone. And I have been cancer-free for eight of those. But I walked the journey of 55 chemotherapies, two surgeries, radiation, um, all of that to get to be cancer-free. Um, I was not in a clinical trial for my treatment. I responded to standard of care, but I volunteered um, as a quote-unquote healthy volunteer uh, many times along my journey for clinical research um, and signed consent forms, et cetera, all of that. So as I, as I came through my cancer diagnosis, 
it, it dawned upon me that there was this huge gap between patients and caregivers, that's an inclusive group, patients and caregivers, and industry. There was this huge disconnect of communication, understanding, mutual goals, everything that you want to say. And so in 2018, I basically hung out a shingle and started doing what we now call patient engagement, um, of, of really filling those gaps. And I got more work than I knew what to do with. I started a website, put my story up there, and basically just said, hey, I speak both patient and industry. I've been on both sides. I, you know, I, I am a translator. And it, uh, it was very warmly received to the point where CNS Summit, does everybody know about CNS Summit? Go to CNS Summit, subtle plug, subtle plug. Um, CNS Summit back in 2021, when Jamie McDonald, the CEO of ParXL, and Peyton Howell, our chief growth, chief growth officer of ParXL, heard me speak on a panel at CNS Summit and came to me afterwards. And, and the thing was, I was in Salon A, and in Salon B was this guy, Craig Lipset, talking with this other guy, Amir Kalali, and they had everybody in their salon. And I had about, I don't know, five people in mind. But like I said, two of those people were critical. And they approached me and said, we want you to come speak to our Global Leadership and Sales Summit. And that was the beginning of 22. And I spoke with Dr. Claire Grace, who was the chief patient officer at the time, um, who was the first chief patient officer in the CRO industry. And uh, I fell in love with Claire. And if you know Claire Grace, everybody falls in love with her. And I liked everything she was about. And I investigated ParXL and their values and what they stand for. And they were about everything I was about. So I really just wore Claire down. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about coming back to work full time. You know, can I come work for you, work with you? And she said, all right, I got something for you. Let's try it out. And, and we tried out a contract with ParXL. Um, May of 22 until February 23, when they brought me on full time as their patient ambassador, um, and and uh, I'll get into that in a second. But then I just uh, Claire is moving onward and upward. I, I, it hasn't been formally announced yet, but she's moving into a great opportunity the end of this month, and I am filling very big shoes as chief patient officer at ParXL to succeed Claire. Um, so what do I do? Okay, so, you know, chief patient officer, as you said, Craig, this is a pretty new concept. And um, what do I do? I do the same thing that I did basically as patient ambassador, just with a bigger title. And that is that I am the ambassador of the patient voice, both internally and externally for ParXL. And I ensure we have a our, our, one of our core values right on our business strategy map is that we are patients first. And I ensure that that value is embedded in all of our interactions, both internally and externally. And I keep everybody at ParXL honest to at that core value, whether you are knee deep in spreadsheets or reading a compliance manual or out at the sites or whatever you're doing at the end of everything we do is a patient who's fighting for her life from stage four colon cancer is a boy named Emmett who's just trying to have the best possible life from a rare disease. And I want everybody to keep that front and center. Um, 
So that's the long and the short of it. Let me pause there and um, come back to you, Craig. There is a lot there, Stacy, and you know, congratulations on the you know the journey, both as a patient and the milestone that you've had, but also obviously this journey in the industry. It certainly speaks so much to, you know, being an advocate for what you believe in and being an advocate for yourself. You know, that journey about getting yourself out there, getting up on stage and sharing your experience, your story, your perspective at places like CNS Summit, um, which then helped to propel you within some of these companies, but then continuing to be that advocate for yourself in terms of yeah. looking to make that transition and enter a full-time you know, uh, opportunity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's so many friends in our uh, ecosystem right now that are being impacted by um, some of the deceleration in our industry and the contraction that's going on. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, this is, I think, a great message uh, in terms of just keeping to get yourself out there and advocating for yourself. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, the, you know, yes, I'm chief patient officer of ParXL, and that's my day job. Um, but first and foremost, I am a cancer survivor thriver. I am caregiver to my son. I am a patient advocate for the unseen, the unheard, the unrepresented in healthcare. That's who I am at my core. And and that's, you know, and you know that I wrote a I wrote a piece on on LinkedIn where I went to a couple conferences. I went to ASCO and I went to ESMO, and and, and I was in the and I'm an advocate, so I was in the patient advocacy lounge. And I fought my way in there, and they said, "Well, no selling." And I said, "Okay, well that's easy because I don't sell, so um, I advocate." And I try to I I want there to be a thousand more Stacys. I mean that's what I want more than anything. I, I want there to be every patient advocate who's out there who wants their voice heard in industry to make it better for patients and caregivers after us. I want them to be chief patient officers, and so it's it's imperative on me to show the value of this role, to show the value of of patient engagement. You know, I continually sit on bid defenses where patient engagement is an afterthought and it's struck from the budget and in everything else, you know, oh, we're not going to pay for patient engagement or we don't. Well, my, if you, I'm looking right now at my 2024 high level priorities and it is to ensure that we have, and I'm going to steal this, uh, this word from my friend Jane Miles, an upstream patient voice and patient perspective included on every proposal. And that leads to protocol optimization and burden reduction for our patients and caregivers. And it's imperative on me to show the value of that and why it's not an afterthought that it should be in study startup and that it should be very early on. And furthermore, how do we measure that? What are those metrics of that of that patient experience that we can show. I mean, one thing that I'm going to do and and everybody I'm already making waves. We had our global leadership and sales summit <laughs> meeting this week and I was already laying stuff down and I think everybody already hates me. But, you know, I said at the very least what we can do is add a field and sales force to show 
where we included a patient voice or patient perspective, either through utilizing our internal patient community at Parkcell or outreach to patient advocacy groups, and what's the hit rate on that? <clears throat> and when we get awarded studies that had patient voice, we're going to start demonstrating the value of why that's so necessary and, and how we increased you know, participation and retention in that study. Stacy, um, when I was at Pfizer, I, I had this job title of, you know, head of innovation for development or head of clinical innovation. And the, you know, the the position that I, I took at the time was, you know, I don't own innovation here, right? Mm -hmm. I'm the champion, the advocate around the process, and we can do certain projects together. And um, but we wanted everybody to embrace innovation, not feel that they're outsourcing it to Craig internally. Um, so. Is there a role for the other 20,000 people at uh, an organization like Parkcell to embrace their inner chief patient officer and to bring their patient persona? Because with 20,000 people, mm -hmm. you've got plenty of patients and people with caregiver experience throughout yeah. the org, right? Yeah, no, that's so that's why we started. Um, and, and this goes back to my line manager, Nicola Gokul and Claire Grace who uh, started our internal patient community at ParXL. So, you know, we, th there's, this, uh, there's this discussion that goes back and forth, you know, the whole, we are all patients uh, song, you know, we are all patients. At one time or another, we're gonna be patients. Though I personally do not like the whole, we are all patients thing, because there is a big difference between somebody, you know, like my friend, Richie Kahn, who is steadily going blind and who makes several workarounds in his day just to function at the same baseline as a, you know, a typically abled person. Okay, so when when you say I'm a patient and you identify as a patient, it means that you have either non-apparent disabilities or, like I said, certain conditions that require extraordinary measures for you to construct workarounds to be at the baseline of what we'll call uh, an, an ableist, an, an able-bodied person. So I, I do take great offense with the whole, <laughs> we are all patients. If you're, if you're going to your doctor and you know, you're getting a physical once a year or you're getting some blood drawn, you, you don't identify as a patient. So, um, you know, so, but like I said, but getting back to what you said, Craig, um, so we have 20, 22,000 people now at ParXL and, and several of whom do have these conditions that I speak of, who do have life altering um, conditions that enrich their experience that they're bringing to the job every day. And we are, we do have a specific community for that, that we are tapping into their insights to help improve our process and help make clinical trials better for the uh, customers that we serve. So that is a way that we, we are connecting our employees to our patients' first core value by, by bringing in their lived experiences, you know, them surviving cancer. We also have a rare disease patient community specifically for that, um, that if, if they are suffering with, uh, afflicted by a rare disease or a caregiver for somebody with a rare disease, that they can bring in that experience. So again, everybody says, Stacy, you know, you need to, to clone yourself or whatever, um, I, I, I am, we are 22,000 strong with, with our, with our patient community at ParXL. So, um, we're really excited about that. So Stacy, can I double click there for a sec? Um, sure. I think I tried an experiment like this oh, in another lifetime. 
how are those folks who have that lived experience within Parexcel mm -hmm. contributing to those, I'm going to call them insights, like, mm -hmm. is that a knowledge base you're building? Is it, well, yeah. exactly how do they work with you on that? Yeah, yeah, great question. Needless to say, there was a bunch of compliance steps that went into this and um, a lot of consent. And if you've followed me for a while or you've listened to me, you know that I will get up on the stage every day and say, patients own our data. It's our data. We are the ones that say where it goes, how it's used, and you're not going to, you know, take my data and go and sell it you know, um, without me knowing, et cetera. So um, to that end, Jane, we, like I said, we did have um, a heavily uh, involved compliance step um, and consent step that, are, that uh, our employees know, you know, what's being done with this data. So back to your question. So yes, we are creating a database internally of those insights um, to help inform our strategy and help inform our delivery and help inform our standards of what we're doing at ParXL, um, you know, to, to um, be the best possible partner that we can be with our sponsors and our vendors and our stakeholders, et cetera. So, so that's, that's what we're doing. We, we are creating that internally because um, that's what we said. We were like, you know, we could go out externally and, 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 you know, get these insights, but we have 22,000 people here who have lived experience. Like, let's tap into our own internal expertise and our own internal talent that, that we have here and, and collect that together. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. It. It's a good start. So where do the insights show up? Oh. How do you use them? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm sorry, right into um, it's kind of the same thing that I'm doing. So if we get, you know, a protocol, um, you know, we'll look at the schedule of assessments. And if we have a patient, uh, a member of our patient community, so say we get a protocol on um, uh, gastric cancer and we have a gastric cancer survivor as a member of our patient community. So we'll pull them in um, for their insights, maybe to look at the schedule of assessments are they burdensome, et cetera? Look at the in, informed consent. Look at the patient materials. Are they appropriate for somebody, uh, you know, affected by gastric cancer? Does this does this mirror, you know, the population that we are intending to treat? So they're basically doing the same thing that I'm doing, which is internal, actual patient review of, like I said, materials, ICF protocol for burden reduction, for bur for protocol optimization, et cetera. So, yeah. Thank you. That That's super clear. And thank you for putting that clarity in place. Oh, of course. You of course. know, um, it reminds me, Stacey, of a, of a crazy anecdote when I was at a, a large company and we started to look at how we could tap into patient experiences just within our own colleagues. And I had this conversation with our <laughs> Um, head for employment law at the company. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. We're going to end up going down this path of like <laughs> angst about HIPAA and privacy. And obviously people were opting in. We weren't bullying people into sharing their experiences. But right. this is this is where the conversation took the unexpected big corporate turn that it did. They said, you know what our concern is, is that 
Does this make it so that a project manager who is a breast cancer survivor now mm -hmm. has an unfair advantage over a project <laughs> manager who is not, you know, a breast cancer survivor? And this person is now in a position to offer more, oh, you know, value gosh. and have more opportunities. And I thought, wow, think of the world where all of a sudden oh, a person with a lived patient experience is seen as, as an having advantage. an unfair advantage right. in the workplace. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Like, I, I mean, that always cracks me up. Like, I, I would give everybody's like, so, you know, if you had your choice, you know, oh, Stacy, you know, you've come through cancer so strong and you've used your experience, you know, would, would you go through it? You know, if you had your choice to have never gone through it, what would you say? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I wish I never had cancer. It sucked. It was terrible. I hated it. I mean, I've obviously made the best of it and, and I'm, I'm thriving and I've, I've turned my mess into my message um, and into my mission. But would, would I give anything to have never have gone through it? Well, you betcha. I mean, it's, it sucked. What can I tell you? Um, but, but yeah, that's, uh, that's not surprising. That's not surprising. And then, and then um, one more point on that is that you know, we all go to these conferences time and time again, and it's like, how do you work with patients? How do you, you know, and everything? And I'm like, well, it's pretty darn easy. You just talk to them and you ask them what they think, and then you infuse it into your process. Like, this is not tough stuff, people. Like, what, what, you know, and I can say that, and, and you know, I, I say that sort of flippantly, and obviously I say that through my lens, but, um, so let me just say, with that being said, you know, I'm very fortunate, like I said, that I've been on both sides and that I can serve as this translator and speak both patient and industry and help bring the both sides together. But Amir, I see you came off mute. Hi, Seth. It's lovely to, you know, for you to be able to share your story. And I think uh, I'm sure everyone in the room is um, very touched by that. Um, one thing, I, I have hundreds of questions, but I'll just stick to one for now. Um, you mentioned, you know, being a bit defensive and trying to being frustrated many times with <laughs> you know, patients not being upstream. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about kind of examples where you, why you think that is, and also where you've been successful at kind of turning that around? But why do you think it is that we, you know, repeatedly do that, and the patient really isn't as the center of what we do? So why why do you think that is, and have you seen yeah. successful ways of solving that? I have a great story to share, my favorite story of all time about my success. And I can't wait till it's unblinded one day and I can I can shout it from the from the rooftops. But but first, your first question. So I think it gets back to not understanding the value. And I know that all of us on this call <clears throat> continue to have these discussions of how do you quantify the the value? You know, so you, you, I get on the bid defenses. And the sponsors all ask the same thing, like, well, of course, you know, what's it going to cost and what am I getting for my money? And what, what, can, what are you going to concretely show me that's going to advantage my study? <clears throat> Excuse me, that's going to increase, you know, accelerate recruitment, um, decrease hospitalizations, accelerate timelines. How am I going to do this faster? How am I going to do this better? You know, what metrics can you give me? I'm going <clears> to... <throat> excuse me, I still get chemo voice. You know, I'm going to spend $50,000 on this 
patient insights package or patient, you know, what can you, what's going to be the, uh, the X on my return there? You know, what, what are, what, what dollar amount are you going to save me for spending 50 grand? And, and I mean, if somebody, believe me, in our audience can speak up and give a formula on that, you know, other than we've all seen the slide from, um, oh, um, I think CTTI, which shows that, you know, a one protocol amendment, uh, you know, costs what, you know, 67 times or whatever the investment. So we, we've seen that data. But, but to give just a concrete answer of you're going to spend X and I'm going to save you X, in my humble opinion, is still evolving. And so you need what we call the believers, right? You need somebody who, who sees the value, maybe can't quantify the value, but sees the value in that. So, so that's the, the answer to your first part of your question is, we just aren't doing a good enough job yet of quantifying the value around patient engagement, patient insights, patient involvement. Even though, this is a whole nother, maybe we'll get to this, you know, even though we have the FDA guidance series on patient-focused drug development telling us, you know, that the FDA wants to see patient involvement and wants to see this, but we still don't have enough guidance around the metrics, the value, what's the advantage for that and all that. So that, that's a whole nother. But if you could humor me for a second, I'm gonna tell you my favorite story. This is an exclusive to Clubhouse because I don't think I've shared this externally, but this is, this is, this is it for me. This is everything for me. So, so um, a sponsor recently got into the oncology space. They had not typically been in the oncology space before. So, so they did what every other sponsor does. They went out and they, they, they have a couple preferred providers, CRO providers, but they wanted to audition everybody and see who was best suited to deliver their oncology pipeline. So, um, so of course, Parkcell said to me, Stacy, you know, we're, we're going to get you on this. I mean, you know, this is it, patient ambassador, cancer survivor. And so um, I got on this call with the sponsor. I was really nervous because it was, it was like all of our top people and everything. And I just started talking about my lived experience and um, patients who would be eligible, they, they put forth, I, I need to keep things confidential here, but they put forth like a protocol of, of a cancer population that I knew about and I had talked to, and I kind of knew their struggles and their challenges. And so I started asking specific questions and the sponsor was like, you could tell they were like, wow, this, this woman really knows what she's talking about. Okay. Like, you know, in terms of in exclusion criteria, people with stents in their liver, et cetera, et cetera. So they, so I was gaining their respect. So they still hadn't made a decision on their partner. The next thing you know, so that was back in April of last year. And then the next thing you know is I get a call from like our top brass, like, Stacy, uh, that sponsor wants to meet with you at ASCO. And I'm like, okay, well, who all? Like, am I taking like our chief medical officer and our regulatory folks and our feasibility folks? No, they just want to meet with you. And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh, gosh, this is like a massive pharma company. So, you know, okay. So I'm walking over to their booth, picture Stacy walking over and I'm like freaking out, nervous, get over there. And the, the, the man who was on the call, who I'd kind of really bonded with, I felt like we were speaking the same language, comes over to me, gives me this big hug. 
And he's like, Stacy, you're here. Let me show you what we're thinking about, blah, blah, blah. So then I go into like the little room that they have constructed in the ginormous booth at ASCO. And he's like, you know, I just want to kind of tell you, you know, what we're about in oncology and, and everything and, and what we're trying to do. We want to change the process. And we think that you're the person who can help us do this. And this particular pharma sponsor, they, they have a preferred provider who they work with a lot and, and it's not par excel. So being the honest, authentic person that I am, I looked at him and I said, well, this is really great, but you don't typically work with us. You work with X. And this is really important to me personally, and I'd love to deliver this for you. How can I work with you? How can Parkcell work with you? And he said, all right, write these three things down. And it was, you know, support participation of patients. And he said, figure out a way to, um, figure out a way to demonstrate that in the proposal. And I said, okay, I will. And I went back and I solutioned it with our team. And the best outcome of the story was that they chose Parexcel, which I still get emotional telling the story. They chose us as their partner on this study that's keenly personal to me. And furthermore, that man who I'm talking about, who I can't wait one day to say who this angel investor is, because he's an angel investor in Stacy, he said, we gave you this study because of Stacy and her story. And that's recorded in Salesforce. And when I got my promotion, I called very few people and I told them personally, and he was one. And I said, thank you for believing that my story could be a solution for you. And if I see nothing else in this clubhouse, and I'm sorry, I'm so emotional, but like I said, this is the first time I'm talking about some of this stuff externally. But if there's one thing that I can say to patients out there, to advocates, I want to make everybody's story a solution. I want everybody to have that opportunity to say, I fought stage four lung cancer, and this is what I went through, and this and that and the other. And I want a pharma company, a biotech company to hear it and I want them to see the value, and I want them to understand how my story can improve their process. So, like I said, that's a Clubhouse exclusive. Nobody else has heard that story, um, but well, it's a big one. Thank you, Stacey. I'm sure everyone was, you know, uh, felt that light in the room. Uh, that was a really good answer. And I think, look, um, as a non-oncologist, right, it's not my specialty, we have people in the room that are, um, what's always seemed pretty obvious to me, which, you know, is right now it seems in oncology we have, you know, many conditions where we have more trials than patients, frankly. So in that context, it seems to me for any sponsor, they need to be competitive, whether it's or being site-friendly, but particularly patient-friendly in terms of uh, trials that people want to be in. Do you think that has an impact on them? Understand, do they get that? That yeah. they really are competing for very few patients and if they want people to come into their trial, from a very business perspective, they they absolutely should, should be doing everything they can to make these trials easier for patients. That just seems to me obvious from a non-oncologist. Yeah, no, Amir, absolutely. We're going to continue to see this power shift. I mean, 
as as patients become more empowered with information, I mean, the internet was really the game changer the, the, that leveled the playing field, right? I mean, we, we've seen that statistic that 80% of patients are going out to Dr. Google before they're seeing a patient. They're diagnosing themselves, right? And as I paint the algorithm when I'm on a bid defense with a sponsor, I'm like, walk this patient journey with me for a second. You get a diagnosis, whatever it is, and, and it can be non-oncology. So let me be more inclusive to whether that is, you know, diabetes, uh, 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 neurological condition, et cetera. What's the first thing you do? You go to the internet, you look it up and you try to figure it out yourself. What's the second thing you do? You Google for an advocacy group that's going to support me in whatever this condition is. And you connect with them. Why? Because advocacy groups are the trusted sources of information. That's, that's the community that has the trust. So, um, so I, I I lost my train of thought there, but um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. But <laughs> that's chemo brain coming in. The, well, the you, you were just talking about how it's important for sponsors to understand being patient. Oh oh, the right right right. So okay, so you have all these patients out on the internet. Okay, so let's just say one that has a million trials, like breast cancer. You know, is is a great example. So, like I said, this power shift into the hands of the patients that you're going to choose the trial that has the least amount of burden, that has the least amount of steps, that has the least amount of biopsies, tests, et cetera. But this is what we're gonna to continue to see is patients are gonna become more discerning, more choosy, more informed, and they're going to be, I'm sorry, we're going to be the ones calling the shots on the trials. And, and we're going to be looking at them and, and saying, oh, that one looks good. No, I wouldn't do that one. I wouldn't do that one. And yeah, to your point in rolling. Go ahead, Craig. Stacy, a couple of years ago, there was a, a movement among conferences to have a badge that said patients were included. And that meant something. There was a, a group of patients that defined that patients included meant that they were involved in the programming content. Mm -hmm. There were seats in the in the room for them. Do we need a badge that says patients included for study protocols so yes. that when patients are considering a study that they can understand that patient input was included in the design and that means something to them? Yeah, um, yeah, you may be stealing one of my ideas, Craig. You may, I may be looking at my, <laughs> but abs absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. First of all, shout out to patients included, um, to the late, great Casey Quinlan for that, who was a pioneer in that, um, and, um, you know, in conference design. But we absolutely do need now a stamp of approval that says, patient voice was included in this protocol that this is this protocol is patient approved yes and guess who's leading that way she may be on this call right now absolutely well stacy i'm going to send you a link to my talk at stanford medicine x from a couple of years ago and maybe we're going to work <laughs> together on this one as a side so. hustle hey let's open up the room for um questions uh feedback questions for Stacy 
Uh, so if you would like to jump on stage with us, this is a great time to take advantage of, I don't even know what the icon is in Clubhouse anymore. It used to look to me like a hand raising. <laughs> now it's kind of, uh, actually on my phone, it almost looks like a patient, right? It's like a little person with a plus symbol that could be looked at like it's a healthcare yeah. thing. Maybe, I know it's not, it's to add yourself, but I, I get it. I'm just going on brand for the topic today. Um, <laughs> Anyway, if you have a, a question or thought, jump on stage now. Uh, Stacy, one question for on my mind. Um, at a CRO, can you get involved early enough in the process to really embed that patient insight up front? Sometimes at a CRO, are you getting involved a little later in the process? Yeah. And can you still include patient insight? Or are these studies just too far gone, too far along? Yeah. Great question, Craig. Um, first of all, you know, I, I think that CROs, we're in a great position, um, you know, and I made that joke, Emily, I see you're on here and, and you, you called me an icon and I said, wait, is that is that me or our competitive CRO humor? But all of us CROs, Icon, Ikevia, Cineos, Fortria, um, PPD, all of us, those are the big ones. We're all in a great position to really affect this process because we're kind of like this clearinghouse and we're kind of, I mean, we're the service provider and we're like this middleman, middlewoman, middle they, if you would, to to impact a variety of players, a, a, a variety of sponsors and really change the process for the better. So that's why I love being in this position working for a CRO because it really gives a big platform across a variety of players to you know, impact the process for the better. So to your uh, question, Craig, so this particular success story that I told, that workshop happened, so we're gonna finalize this protocol in May of this year. So this happened a year before, a year before the final protocol. So we're not even to first patient in. So you wanna talk about early engagement, early involvement, so I've seen about 12 versions of this protocol that I've made recommendations that I've sat in with all of the medics, et cetera, and said, you know, why do we, why do patients have to, and decentralized options, which plays right into, um, you know, who we're talking about. I've made several recommendations on, wait a minute, do they have to go to the site for that? Is that something that maybe a home health nurse can do? Is that just a blood draw? Is that a PK sample? Can we decentralize that? Um, and so, like I said, that that happened a year ahead, but tr total props to this sponsor, to this this angel investor in Stacy I'm speaking of, who had that vision and saw it. So you have that great example to the point of you have a completely baked protocol that I get in there and I review it and I say, wait, is this finalized? It is. And I'm like, okay, well, we can't do anything about these back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back biopsies, you know? And, and I love when I get on the bid defenses, my favorite too. When I get on bid defenses and I say to the sponsors, has anybody had a biopsy? Has anybody on this call had a biopsy? I had one. It's a needle this long that went into my liver when I was awake because you couldn't be sedated. And because I, I had to breathe for them to extract the sample. It was extremely painful. And all of you on this call know I'm a total badass and I'm super tough. And it hurt like heck that giant needle, but yet you're asking these patients to get weekly biopsies with the giant needle? Come on, 
have some compassion. Is there a different way? Can, can we do this via liquid biopsy? We're seeing, and we saw that data come out of um, GI ASCO, uh, you know, liquid biopsy is really, you know, here to stay. So, but, um, so Craig, uh, the long answer is it depends. And you just need a visionary sponsor who who sees the value very early on. But I see we have someone on stage. We do have someone on stage. Priya, welcome to the stage. Please take a moment, introduce yourself, share your question or perspective. Uh, thanks, Greg. Um, and sorry, I'm driving. I don't know if I was going to be on to ask this question. And thank you so much, Stacey, for sharing your experience. It just tears my eyes every time I read what you share and listen to you. Um, uh, I work at Calisics and uh, it's so much aligned to what you are speaking about, making research accessible and how patients can contribute uh, and share their stories. My question is how, uh, from your experience, and you already spoke a lot on this, so I apologize again that you have to say this, but I'm trying to find ways for small and mid-sized sponsors uh, to convince them that the cost of amendment is going to be much higher than the cost of the time that you will spend listening to these patients when the protocols are being designed. Yeah. And it's still sometimes hard yeah. uh, for me to get that point across because they want to go quick, they want to move quick. And yeah. the perception is that this is going to take much longer if we go back and forth this way. So anything that you could share on that, and thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on stage. And it's it's certainly it's it's not a, a point that can be, you know, overstated and not I mean, you know, we're we are lacking on proving the value prop for early patient engagement. I mean, and that that's just going to continue to evolve over time and we're just gonna have to continue to curate and compile that data and and continue to work together on that. If you don't have the CTTI slide, reach out to me personally and I'll fly it over to Stacey, you. Stacey, I just dropped, I pinned the link to the city paper on, uh, on oh. the topic at the top of the page here. So it's here in uh, the clubhouse, it should be pinned on the screen and Perfect. we'll be sure to add that in the show notes as well. What a great call out to some fabulous work, um, which, I think at the time was very much modeling driven, but to your point, you know, we need to get to a place where we have actual evidence and we're able to gather and aggregate that evidence. So it's not just forecasts and modeling of what it could be in terms of ROI and cost impact, but really what it has been if we're really adopting these approaches. Absolutely. Thanks for dropping that up there. And I see we have Jacob on stage. We do have Jacob. Welcome. F please come on off mute, Jacob. Introduce yourself and share your question or perspective. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, allowing me on the stage. Um, so just wanted to kind of spin off the comment around proofing, you know, where the value is. And I'd, I'd love to see and, and, and hear your perspectives on, you know, we, we look at how we're approaching social drivers of health in, in healthcare you know, kind of across the continuum mm -hmm. and how that ties into the patient voice and its representation at clinical trials. And, and I, I have to assume and, and think and, and want to believe there's an analog there when we can address some of the social drivers of health and how they tie into the patient voice experience because of the different paths that these different yeah. patients, uh, uh, you know, walk through as they enter and exit clinical trials, right? And there's right. the solutions that are developed and ultimately, uh, you know, cost money and people have to spend money on these solutions. They need proof they work and, and where are they going to find that impact, right? 
Yeah, so much truth there, Jacob. And, you know, um, in terms of social determinants of health, obviously we know that, you know, these types of barriers impact underserved populations much more severely than we do, you know, more, you know, middle to upper middle class, et cetera. You know, in terms of just candidly speaking, somebody who is working two jobs just to keep the lights on, you know, they can't exactly just skip out of work to go participate in a clinical trial, right? I mean, that's lost wages um, of of what they're trying to do or or childcare, you know, I mean, who's, you know, what what would I do? I mean, who would take care of Emmett if I went and, and participated in a clinical trial? Um, you know, he needs care. Um, but to your point, you know, I sit on bid defenses and I, and we hear this from patients, every advisory council, every focus group, it's travel, it's childcare, um, it's, you know, reimbursement, it's things like that. Um, but then you say to a sponsor, okay, you're going to have to budget for, you know, travel concierge, et cetera, X number. And of course it's like, well, how can you show me how that's going to increase my enrollment or how that's going to increase my recruitment? And it's like, well, I can't give you like a hard and fast conversion number. Um, so we just have to just keep compiling these case studies of where it does work and what good does look like and just keep demonstrating the value. But uh, again, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And, um, you know, you try to tell them through, like I said, patient feedback, what the patients want. So many advocates vocal about this. Um, and again, the, the um, compounded effect on underserved communities of participation in clinical trials, it needs to be addressed because those are the people we need included in, in clinical research. I want everyone to have the same chance to beat cancer that I did, no matter what their zip code is. So Amy, I mean, at DTRA for various things, we call it evidence of impact, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure anyone is collecting even the data to be able to answer those questions from sponsors or whether it's really <sighs> something you can measure. What, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, tried. I guess, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jane, hit it. No, no, I, I'm <laughs> going to listen to you because you've iterated on what we did. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've obviously I've heard you at, at panels too. Um, you know, I just think that, um, you know, we can collect, we can collect the data on enrollment from underserved populations and, and try to up those numbers from the measly 5% where we are now. But then I think what we're all saying here is, is a step further to say, okay, once they're included, okay, that's great. Are their needs addressed? Because their needs are way more complex than, you know, your speaker here who's white and privileged, who, you know, is keenly aware of that. Their needs are much more acute in terms of human needs, life needs that we need to address. Go ahead, Jacob. But yeah, th I think that this is this is essentially right. Like, how can we prove this with with data? Right, and that's mm -hmm. kind of where where I always kind of draw back to to the foundation of if we can measure it, right? We can manage it. There are right. there are some technologies supporting this type of work through tokenization, and you kind mm -hmm. of pull pull in, you know, these these market indice uh, metrics on population, and you can measure right the risk mm -hmm. that's inherently within the trial population. Population, right? Um, I think that we're early stage in, in seeing that executed in adoption, but it's it's definitely like part of you know a spectrum of solutions that I think can help with this. I think so, my caution for folks okay. here would be that um, 
we talk about needing evidence to do some of these measures as if our existing models are a gold standard. Um, yes. And right, we have no, here, actually we do have evidence that the, exist, the existing models don't work. Look <laughs> at our lack of representation and lack of participation in research. And so it, it sometimes, I, I, look, I absolutely agree we need evidence. Um, we, we, but the lack of evidence is not an excuse for the lack of effort. Um, in the absence of evidence, we still need to take leadership and steps forward to improve access, experience, representation, um, and collect evidence in the process. Stacy, we have just another minute and a half left. Do you have any <laughs> closing words for the folks in the community today? I mean, I always begin and end with gratitude. So um, thank you. I, I, everybody's time is so precious right now. We're kicking off the year and um, for you to jump on here means the world to me. Um, happy to connect with anybody on here, um, any way that I can help. I can, uh, Stacy can help outside of the ParXL uh, structure too. You know, I, I went up and gave a great talk to Harbinger Health um, in exchange for a generous donation to the National Health Council, who's doing great work. So, um, you know, if I can work with you or help you, um, I don't have to be delivering a trial for you to do that. We can keep this conversation going and, and we can keep moving the needle together. There are creative ways that we can do that. And um, let's just keep going, folks. That's it. Um, I love your Oh, gosh, Craig, your statement about lack of evidence does, you know, should not constitute lack of effort. Uh, that's that's our that's our key takeaway today. Absolutely. Fantastic. It was great having you with us, Stacey, and I'm sure everyone enjoyed it as much as we did. Thank you. We're so Aww. fortunate to have you, Stacey, both here on this show, here in the community, um, and everywhere you go. So I'll look forward to seeing you soon, and we'll look forward to having this group back together soon in another week. Remember, reach out to Stacey if you have any follow-up questions. Give a follow to Stacey and other friends that are here in the room with you here today. If you're joining us through a, a replay, remember you can always join us live on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern. And if you have a topic you'd love to see us cover in the weeks and months ahead, just drop us a line and let us know. Stacy, Priya, and Jacob, thank you all for jumping up on stage with us here today. And we'll see everyone in another week. Thanks, all. Thanks, everyone. Bye -bye. Have a great weekend. Bye.